Hey there, Conquerors. Welcome to another episode of Conquering Columbus. Today on the show, we have Mr. Robert Hada, and really excited to present you guys today's episode. But quickly before we get going, wanted to remind you all that we are on Patreon now. So if you head on over to www.patreon.com backslash Conquering Columbus, which will be linked in the show notes, you can see ways you can support us via small monthly donations, and you get cool rewards for being a patron of ours. So please go check it out, and we hope you enjoy today's episode. could drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment and I might get you know my head kicked in in the beginning but I'll find a way to survive I'll find a way to get the job done yeah there's a little doubt but you know what once again I think of that guy in my ear I think about stepping up to the stage I think about the challenge like I've lost sometimes but I've won more than I've lost and so like I bet on me any day choosing greatness greatness doesn't choose you you know, you have to choose it. And, you know, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus. Hey guys, like Mike mentioned, on today's episode we have Mr. Robert Hada. For those of you not familiar with Robert, he's currently the talent partner at Columbus, Ohio-based venture firm Drive Capital. Prior to joining Drive, though, he has a laundry list of accomplishments and experiences, some of which include the VP of Talent for Jumpstart Ventures, where he helped place hundreds of hires in early-stage startups at all levels. He also has held senior leadership roles within technology companies at all stages of growth, including Apple, Netflix, Virgin Mobile, and TAC. He's a graduate from Stanford University with a degree in economics, where he's also a student-athlete. On this episode, we start off covering a little bit about Robert's life and how he got to where he is today. We talk a lot about his experiences along the way and what he's learned working with all those awesome companies, everything that they have going on with Drive Capital, and then what the future looks like for him and his team at Drive. And without any further ado, let's go ahead and jump into it and introduce Robert into the episode. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, we're excited to have you here today. How's your day been going so far? Oh, it's a beautiful day in Columbus, Ohio. <laughs> Actually, literally a beautiful day in Columbus, Ohio, and there's a lot more of those than it seems uh, uh, that aren't, so we're happy to be here. Mm-hmm. And is, are your days spent full-time here all year round, or do you ever travel? I actually travel quite a bit. So in my role at, at Drive Capital, which we'll talk about a little bit later, um, we invest all the way across the Midwest, so broadly speaking, from Kansas City to Pittsburgh, mm-hmm. and then up to Minneapolis. So uh, that's a lot of companies and ground to cover, and, and I help our companies um, with their uh, team building, so there's a lot of hands-on work with founders. So I, I travel about three days a week. Cool. Right, and this is kind of giving a little bit ahead of things, but Drive Capital is the first uh, venture capital firm to move out of like the Silicon Valley area and into Columbus, into the Midwest, correct? Uh, actually, we were founded here. So right. um, the, the, the folks involved, um, mm-hmm. the, the co-founders, Mark and Chris, moved here to start the firm. Um, and, and the rest of us have moved here to join the firm. But it was founded here solely mm-hmm. with a focus on on, on, ent- on partnering with uh, world-changing technology companies that we think can be um, founded, scaled, and become really valuable businesses here in the Midwest. Before we jump too much into Drive, let's kind of maybe kick things back and talk a little bit about your background, maybe start sure. at Stanford, and then how you kind of grew into your different positions up until you landed at Drive. Sure, sure. Well, at, before Stanford, I started in Cleveland, Ohio. So... 
I'm a Clevelander, um, which is, I'm, I'm quite proud of, uh, but it's also, as you guys know, not an easy thing to do growing up rooting for the Browns and the Cavs and the Indians. Uh, you're kind of born into it, whether you like it or not. Um, but grew up on the west side of Cleveland, um, pretty standard blue-collar, middle-class background. Dad's a teacher and a high school wrestling coach. Mom's a social worker. Um, and uh, like I think a lot of people in the Midwest – grew up thinking, I got to get the hell out of here. I got to go as far away as I can. And uh, as I grew up, uh, that meant California, you know, the, the big dreams of living on the beach and being in the sunshine. Uh, it actually happened that, um, I think it was my junior year, it was January, wrestling season, I'm cutting weight, it's cold outside, it's miserable, I'm, miser- I'm miserable, <laughs> and uh, I'm flipping around on TV and I see a, a, a bowl game that Stanford football is playing in, and the students are sitting in the stands wearing t-shirts, some not wearing shirts at all, and I'm thinking that's where I, that's where I would rather be right now, so that, that spring I... I uh, I started uh, looking at going to Stanford, and that's where I ended up going. Uh, Did they recruit you athletically, or was it just kind of you? Yeah, I was kind of a tweener, so wasn't a really super successful wrestler, but I was good enough um, to get recruited um, by by good academic schools, Um, and small enough. I was a a one eighteen pound recruit, small enough that there were a lot of. It's it's hard to find good eighteen pounders, as you guys know. So. Um, yeah, I, I was recruited by Stanford and a handful of other schools and in in that sort of uh, level of, of both academics and, and sports um, competitiveness. And, and I got in early, uh, early admission, so I knew in November I was going to Stanford. What kind of level were you at academically? Just, I'm always curious when we talk to somebody who's reached your success level because not always – sometimes you get surprised and people, you know, they, they go to Stanford, but it's just because of their work ethic. So were you always a high achiever and – like ACT scores and things like that? I was the opposite. So I was, um, school came easy for me, um, which ended up being a, you know, being something I really had to unlearn and, um, and, and change as I became a professional. I think if, if there was one thing I realized as I got out of school and got into startups, um, it was, I really need to constantly be learning new things and doing new things um, and, and producing great results, and that's a lot of hard work. And in, in high school and college, unfortunately for me, school was just kind of easy, so I just kind of did it, and I went to classes, and I got minimally acceptable grades for me, and but didn't really learn that much. You know, took Spanish for three years. I don't speak Spanish. I got good grades in Spanish, um, but I really I learned out of school. It's not enough to get the grade. You've got to actually know your stuff, and and that was um, something I wish I would have started applying myself toward a little bit earlier. Uh, but up to that point, and and through college, my focus was on doing all right in school and and trying to be a better wrestler. Right. So even at Stanford, you didn't have too much of a hard time with the classwork or managing your time while being an athlete or anything like that. Oh, I wouldn't say managing my time was easy. Um, and 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 classwork isn't easy at Stanford, but you can pick how hard it is. Uh, it's one of those schools that's hard to get into, not that hard to get through academically. Um, you know, I'm I was an econ major, and I was sitting next to people who wanted to be PhDs in economics, and they were working really hard. Um, I was looking for a generally applicable business degree, and that was the closest thing we had. Um, so you can pick how hard you want it to be. Um, with, with my focus mostly on sports, 
um, I, I picked what was an acceptable level to get through and, and get a degree. So first place I want to go off script a little bit is you mentioned that you were you learned that you constantly want to be learning once you got out of school. And I think that that's as a young professional right now, and you know, Mike and I talk about this a lot, I struggle with that a lot because you get in this day job and you get this routine and you're not really learning too much, you're just doing the procedures over and over again. So as you graduated college and you started going to these different roles, how were you able to push yourself to keep learning and find different sure. ways to learn? Well, it, it happened because of startups and, and technology companies, which has been the theme of my career over almost 20 years now. Um, my first job out of college, so I graduated in the late 90s, San Francisco Bay Area, um, internet boom is in full swing, and there are new things being invented every day. I mean, the internet, as we know it as, as consumers and normal people, really had only been around for a few years at that point. So here I am, first job out of college, uh, an e-commerce startup, and uh, as is the case typically at startups, um, you say, I'd like a job, <laughs> and they say, well, here's the one we need you to do. And I said, well, I'd really like, I think I'd be better at sales. And they're like, we don't have a sales opening, but we've got this one in finance, and that's the one that we need you to do. And I was like, all right, um, what do you need me to fix? Or what do you need me to do? And they said, well, we've got this little problem. Um, one in 10 of our transactions, so this company backing up is an e-commerce company. We sold downloadable software. Uh, you guys are probably a little too young to know this, but that was once a really big deal. You used to go into a physical store, um, sort of like a Best Buy. If you wanted to buy uh, Microsoft Office or ColdFusion Web Development Suite or Lotus Notes, you went and got a box off the shelf. You and rode a horse there. <laughs> you rode a horse. <laughs> and you took it to the register and you paid for it and you went home and it was on a bunch of, uh, we were at least CDs. It wasn't floppy disks. Okay, I was going to ask, yeah. floppy disks? Yeah. Like, you go out and go. back and you crank up the generator. Uh, no, but you, you, you load the thing up. So it was a big deal, and this is like 96, 97, 98, where uh, you'd enter a credit card number and you'd press buy and, and and a download process would start, and somewhere between 10 minutes and three hours later, you'd have your software that you could start using. Um, and, and there was no physical shipping or anything like that. Turns out that's really uh, a model that's really prone for fraud. You get really valuable software. You don't need to put a physical address down. Uh, at the time, the, um, the security screens for those types of transactions were really not yet invented. So. Um, Long story short, we had one in 10 of our transactions were fraudulent. And the credit card companies looked at us and said, you're, you're done. We're not going to let you take Visa or MasterCard transactions unless you fix this. Um, so that was the problem. They said, here's the job we need you to do. So I needed to first understand, A, how the internet worked, uh, B, how e-commerce and credit card processing uh, worked And I'd never done any of those things before. And here is a job that I need to accomplish that has a direct impact on our business's ability to, to survive, which is another lesson in startups is how crazy it is um, that a young person without a whole lot of experience, with very little skills, is given a lot of responsibility really quickly. And that, that was something that I learned to love, that accountability and responsibility that comes with um, being in a small, high-impact role, in a, a small, high-impact company, um, but also, you, you know, you 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 either did it, you either learned how to do it and succeeded, or you learned how to, or you didn't and you failed. The 
the blame was on you, the credit was yours or the blame was on you either way. And of course, it's wrestling an independent sport that just kind of felt natural uh, to me. And six months later, got us down to 1% of transactions, um, which kept us in business. And, and uh, the company was, was bought thereafter um, uh, for a nice valuation. Um, so we ended up succeeding. And I could point directly to how I helped impact that success. So um, anyway, that 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 short line between effort and outcome, learning and outcome, um, hooked me. And I realized, hey, I can learn something really fast, apply it in real time to a real business and have a real impact. And that just lit a fire in me to where I couldn't read enough. I couldn't go to enough seminars and meetings. Um, you know, I went from maybe reading two books in college cover to cover to like reading two books a week. Um, and, and changing my image of Stanford. (laughs) (laughs) Not everybody's like me. I had really, really, uh, academically amazing friends and colleagues there, um, who've gone on to do great things. Um, but yeah, it was, I, had I figured that out, um, sooner, um, it was, who knows what, what could have, um, what could have happened. Just, it just happened a little bit later. Do you find yourself concentrating on one particular area when you were diving into all these different readings and things mm-hmm. like that, or were you kind of just all over the board and anything that you could absorb you take in? Or? It was a combination. So uh, one was, uh, and, it, and it changes through phases. So um, when I was, so at first it was highly practical. Um, figure out how things work so that you can do your job. Um, and, and that evolved to, as my career evolved into more marketing functions and, um, and, and product management, um, I started trying to really understand best practices within that. How do you build strategies? How do you launch campaigns? How do you work with other people? How do you manage a team? Um, how do you grow an organization? So th- those are sort of the themes that I would constantly be trying to learn more about um, through various means. In parallel, you know, just being socially interested in stuff. You know, I remember when I was in London, so this is 2004 to 2007, this is the time of the, the you know, the height of the Iraq and Afghanistan conflicts. And, you know, in the U.S. news and, and, and media world, you kind of get fed a, a narrative of what's going on over there. Um, and it's a pretty limited one. You step even one foot outside of our borders and you get a very different perspective. And, and for me, I wanted to understand that. So I started reading a lot about Middle East cultures, Arab cultures, trying to understand what's been going on, what is the broader context, not just they dropped a bomb on us, we go drop a bomb on them, but what, what's been going on for centuries um, that, that feeds into what's going on today. And, and, and I spent a lot of time reading different books around that topic too. Right, so it's kind of just being curious in, in what you read about and, and your role mm-hmm. and going, you know, give, putting the effort in, I guess, to learn that sort of thing. But um, what I was going to ask you about was, um, were there any uh, key lessons you remembered from your time there at that software company that, um, like, man, I really, this if I hadn't done this, mm-hmm. I probably would have failed? Well, um, I guess the first is initiative. I mean, no one handed me a playbook. There was no manual. There was no do these three things and you'll be successful. I just had to figure that out. And there, in startups, while it's a downside, it's one you, you, you quickly have to get comfortable with. There's not a lot of infrastructure. I didn't go through a training program or an onboarding program. I came in day one 
sat down at my desk and had a stack of papers that said, these are all the transactions that we believe to be fraudulent. Figure out what's going on and start helping us design software and automated systems to block this. And I had to, you know, so I think the, the things I learned are get going, ask a ton of questions, like just ask a ton of questions. Um, there are people around you, there are people in the marketplace that know what you don't. And if you're trying to find answers, you understand what the questions are, go find those people and talk to them. So I wasn't shy about that. Um, and I, and I, frankly, I got lucky. You know, there were people um, who were generous with their time, took interest in me, um, and helped me out. Um, I was lucky to join a company that um, in a time where people were f- just slapping up websites and going public, like literally crappy business models, a lot of hype, um, you know, tell a story, rush to the markets, raise a lot of money, get rich. I was fortunate to join one of the companies full of people really trying to build something. And I recognized that the value of being in an organization full of smart, good people who took uh, interest and and gave me time uh, to develop and then just not being shy about asking a ton of questions, that that I I took with me and I continue to do all the time now. So you developed... Um, pretty good professional sense during that position and then you went on obviously you spent time in Netflix, Apple, Virgin Mobile. I mean I feel like we could spend forever kind of diving into each one but in your mind what are the key positions that you held from that time till now that really helped you evolve professionally and that you got the most out of? Yeah I got a lot out of um, pretty much every experience and a lot of them weren't successes. Um, I think the um, if I look at the pivotal moments um, just to name a few, uh, Virgin Mobile was was a special opportunity for me. I'm still pretty young, 25-ish, um, and this is you know, a few short years later from my first experience. Um, the internet had bubble had crashed, so 2000 2001 was not a nice place. It, uh, Silicon Valley was not a nice place to be, and tons of people are getting laid off. Um, the you know, fundraising comes to a grinding halt. The public markets crash. It was a bloodbath, and I was fortunate to um, join um, a, a Virgin Mobile at the time. So you guys probably know it's a youth-focused, uh, Virgin-branded mobile phone service. Uh, at the time, it was it was pretty revolutionary. Mobile phones at the time. Um, we're called wireless, and uh, we're going back in the Wayback Machine again. They all flipped up. Yeah, they all they flipped, flipped up. up no touch yeah. screens, um, and uh, but you still looked cool when you you flipped that thing oh, open. Yeah. Oh, it was yeah. pretty awesome feeling when I, when I first got my flip phone. Uh, <laughs> but we um, uh, prepaid mobile, so without a bill at the end of the month, but you pay as you go. You buy credits in a, usually a physical retail store. That was classified as for the unbanked or for poor people or people with bad credit. Um, It was never thought of as a mainstream offering that could have a cool brand that would target young people who are also unbanked and have poor credit, but they have a lot of disposable income. Um, And that model had worked in the UK, and our plan was to launch it in the US, and it would be the first mobile virtual network operator in the US. And I was was lucky enough to, to get connected to um, the two founders in the U.S. at the time, at the very beginnings of, um, of of what would be the launch of Virgin Mobile in the U.S. So two guys and me. How'd you get connected so, with them? A friend. 
a friend uh, in the uh, mobile space um, had met the two guys, um, and they were you know really uh, literally on the ground floor. We were in a dumpy, uh, smelly office in the worst part of San Francisco um, on Sixth and Mission. Uh, Tenderloin District for those in, uh, who in your audience who understand what that means and uh, and we we're really just at ground zero yes we had the virgin brand but we didn't have a, a carrier so we didn't the, the model of virtual uh, a mobile virtual network operator is you partner with a Sprint or a Verizon or an AT&T who has their uh, the network and you ride on top of that but you build everything from that point forward all of the customer engagement, all of the building, uh, billing systems, all of the retail distribution of your phones. Um, so we had to build all of that. And it was awesome. I mean, it was uh, a three-year stretch in my career where I went from the guy who was putting together desks to um, uh, a $5 million marketing budget um, and my fingerprints all over big chunks of the product as we were launching nationally. And again, like my first experience, plain lucky in terms of the group of people I got to work with, the best, smartest marketers in all of the wireless space at the time, who were really good people that mentored me, took time. I got to look at them professionally and personally and say, if, I'm in, if I look like you in 10 years, I've succeeded. And I was surrounded by those folks. And I looked around the table one day, literally, I remember this vividly. And it was, it was, I was on the marketing team. We had the whole marketing team around. We're you know, jovially joking and, 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 and talking. And, and I look around and I thought, every one of these people is the best in the industry at what they do. The best handset person, the best uh, mobile messaging marketer, the best uh, retail marketer. And they're all people I want to hang out with and have beers with and, and go out with on weekends. I was, I was overwhelmed by, by gratitude of that. Um, so that, that was definitely one of the more pivotal, pivotal experiences. Um, I can keep talking about others. I'm, I'm one, one topic in there that I wanted to talk about, and Mike and I have talked about this on previous episodes, our time, you know, in collegiate athletics, being surrounded by the top people in that field and literally thinking exactly what you thought, but in an athletic environment. Like if I'm where these people are in 10 years as a mental state of mind and the way that they live their mm -hmm. life, the way they think, I'll have succeeded beyond what I've ever imagined. But I think um, in a professional environment, since getting out of college, I personally have struggled to find a professional environment where I feel that same way. Like I'm surrounded by the most elite individuals in the world that are, you know, in the professional scene. So do you think that's possible in a place like Columbus, Ohio, or do you think that you have to oh, absolutely. to Silicon Valley? Absolutely. No, I mean, we wouldn't exist if we felt that. Um, we've been in Columbus and have now invested in four companies um, that have collectively hired 200-plus people. Um, and they're building technologies that are at the very edge of, of cutting edge and solving huge problems in healthcare and in insurance um, in, in ways that really nobody else is. So absolutely you can find that. Um, you got to look for it, though, anywhere. So, so my, my, I describe my first two experiences of my career as sort of being lucky. Um, to have found great people, really smart people, all of us aligned around a, a shared goal. Um, and I was lucky. I wasn't smart enough to know how to find that or even what it looked like. But after that experience, um, I've always looked for that specifically. Um, and you do by finding, uh, well, well for, for yourself, answering three questions. 
The first is, you know, what problems do you want to solve? Like if, if you're passionate about curing cancer, like the folks at Pelotonia, or you're passionate about solving issues um, uh, around waste and fraud and, and abuse in the healthcare system, like uh, Crosschecks or Aver, two companies in our portfolio, or Cover My Meds here in town, all three great companies. You go, if, if you're passionate about those problems, you go find the companies that are equally passionate about it. And you open the door and you'll find people that excite you because they're, they get up every morning motivated to solve the same problems that you care about. The second thing you can look for is just people passionate about maybe not the problem they're solving, but the tools and technologies they use to get there. You're, if you're a geek about gaming or drones or um, uh, the Internet of Things or any number of technologies, um, go to the, find the companies that are innovating in those spaces. Find the companies that are inventing there and, and, and go say, I want to work here. Um, and the third is about people. Like if you interview with uh, a company or through other means meet a few people at a company and you're like, man, these guys, they're smart. They're thinking about things the same way. I talk to five people there and they all tell me the same thing. That's, a, that's an aligned team. Uh, if you can find all three of those things in, a, in an opportunity, stop what you're doing, wash the dishes, get coffee, do whatever it takes, um, because you'll be motivated every day. Um, and you'll find that over time, as you do great work, you'll be asked to do a whole lot of other things. Um, so when I coach people about finding opportunities that they can get excited about, it starts with articulating for yourself what those three buckets look like. Problems you want to solve the tools and technologies you like to play with or work with, and the people you want to want to surround yourself with. If you can identify those, then you can go find it. And in our experience in Columbus and across the Midwest is you can find that here, absolutely. And we have found that here. Absolutely. And you know, I think Josh and I have talked about this before too, but again, it comes back to self-awareness and uh, knowing what you want in life and where you, the problems you want to solve, like you said. Mm -hmm. But sometimes it's difficult to really find the answers to those mm -hmm. questions. So is there a good way for someone, you know, young people that are trying to find the answers to yeah. those questions? Like how do they go about pursuing that? Sure. Well, the first step might be admitting to yourself you don't have those answers. And most people do. I mean, we all know that guy or girl who knows exactly what they're doing. You know, they, they've been doing this uh, on a path since they were 17 or 18 through college. My view on them is either they're, lucky as hell and don't know it, or they're full of shit and, and they're kidding themselves. So I would um, start by saying, uh, by asking yourself the questions of what you love doing, the problems you want to solve, the people you want to be around, and admit that if you don't have answers, okay, but then go out and find them. And you don't, you don't find inspiration magically. It doesn't just drop out of the sky like an apple and hit you in the head. Um, you got to try some things out. And, and that was another thing about my career. I mean, if you look at my background, I've worked at a lot of places in a relatively short time. Um, I've, one, that's the nature of technology and startups. A lot of companies go up, they go down, they disappear, they get bought, um, and roles and, and priorities shift really dynamically and quickly. So uh, a typical career in, in, in technology and startups does not look like a typical career in a big corporate environment. 
Um, but what that also gave me was an opportunity to try a lot of different experiences. I got to live abroad for a while and try that. I got to work in a really small company where it's me and two other people in a room. I got to work at larger companies of varying stages. Uh, I got to work on the technology side of the business. I got to work on the, the finance side of the business. So I was fortunate to have a lot of different data points to calibrate over time what I loved, what I was good at, what I got enjoyment from. Um, and it, 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 it didn't happen all at once, I guess is what I'm trying to say. In fact, what I'm doing now is very different from what I was doing 10 years ago. And to piggyback off his question a little bit, I'm following real quick behind you on the skipping jobs a lot thing. Like, I mean, I've done it. And, but it's helped me so much since college because in college I wasn't really self-aware. I had my head down and I knew that I enjoyed what I was doing athletically and what I was doing academically, but I didn't know once I got out anything that was going to happen to me professionally or where I wanted to be. And I was sitting down in front of these people who wanted to help me and they wanted to put me in positions, but I just said, they said, what do you want? And I said, to work hard. I don't know where I want to be. And then they mm -hmm. couldn't do anything for me. But now that I'm at a position where I know, how does somebody go into a company and say, hey, you know, my degree's in this, I've been doing this, but now I know exactly what I want to do. I don't have any experience in it. Will you let me do it for your company? Yeah. So um, first of all, that's the second benefit of the three-bucket system I described. If you can articulate with passion the problems you want to solve, the tools and skills you want to either use or grow, or the type of team you want to be around, there's there's... Two benefits to that when you're out there trying to prove your, yourself um, to, to a company. One is you pretty quickly come into focus of the type of companies you want to go after uh, or opportunities. Second, you now, because you've done this exercise and have articulated to yourself what matters, can now do that to other people. Someone sits down in front of me and says, yeah, I like what you're doing and here are my skills. Um, you know, I haven't really done this before, but give me a chance and, and I'll prove you, prove you right. Um, that, that doesn't move the needle for me. But if someone sits down and says, this is a problem that I've, I care about solving, and uh, maybe I knew it, uh, maybe I've known it all along, or maybe it's something that I've, I just kind of did on the side because I was interested in it, but I didn't know that I could have a career doing this. Um, in either case, you're, talk, you're, you're talking from the heart about, something you're passionate about or motivated by. And that comes through. So yeah, you've never done this before, but you just made me feel um, positive that you are dedicated to doing this. Whether you get this job or not, the next interview you go to is gonna be aligned with what you just told me. Or if you get this job and we go under as a company or you move on some other day, it'll be to do this thing again. Um, which is ironically what we, you know, uh, the, um, what we look for in founders. Uh, what we do when we invest in companies, or what we expect when we invest in companies, is that uh, this can be the next giant, valuable, market-defining company. Um, but we know it's not going to work out all the time. But we know when we invest in a founder that if this doesn't work out, they're going to their next business or whatever they do with the rest of their life is going to be dedicated to solving that same problem. Hey there, Kikers. We're going to take a quick break from the episode today to give a special shout out to our friends over at Zoco Design. Zoco works with brands that are seeking change to connect strategy and creativity and create informed, lasting design that delivers business value. They've got a history that includes working with both industry leaders such as Cardinal Health, the Royal Bank of Scotland, and Ohio State Athletics, as well as startups and small businesses. 
and the Zogo team brings a strong and versatile design experience to the table. Their services and solutions include brand identity systems, visual design, user experience, digital design, and strategy and innovation. So please, if you're a brand looking for a change or a new brand looking to establish yourself in the market, go check them out. Their website will be linked up in the description and tell them Conquering Columbus sent you. All right, let's get back to the show. So what are some notable locations that you've spent throughout your career? You said you spent some time in London and you got some time abroad. And I think a lot of people who spend time abroad gain a lot from those experiences. You, you see a lot of different cultures and the way things work and then you bring it back to where you live. And um, some people have built their, their life businesses around it. So anything in particular that's really stood out to you in other areas? Yeah. Well, uh, I spent 11 years in San Francisco. Uh, in the Bay Area, and three years in London, um, and then as we were, my wife and I were transitioning back to Ohio um, to start our family, we spent about six months traveling. So we spent three of those months traveling around Africa, um, doing some volunteer work in Africa, and then a, a month of travel, and then um, a couple months traveling around the U.S., visiting friends, road tripping. Um, so you know the the key experiences. I mean, living abroad anywhere is just, um, for most Americans, just looking at the world through a different lens, um, which I, I encourage anyone try. Um, living there for three years, particularly in Europe, was just fun because um, all of the rich history and the um, variety of history. I mean, we jump in a car and drive three hours in, in any direction. We're in a different state. And maybe they call it pop or soda um, but there's not a whole lot of differences. I mean, you got to drive pretty far to get to, you know, a distinctly different culture. In Europe, you drive in three hours in any direction, you're in a whole different country with a different language and history and religion in some cases or currency in some cases. Um, for us, that was just an incredible hub and spoke experience to be in London and to be able to jump into a, on a quick hour-long flight um, and and be in a completely different culture, um, learning, failing, eating good food, eating terrible food. Um, we just had a, a, a wonderful experience for that period of our lives as a result. And then Africa was um, perspective shifting in any, every way you would expect, you know, wholly different cultures, wholly different histories, um, very different present um, contexts, um, and, and put for us into perspective of, um, you know, how fortunate we are because we won the, the birth lottery of being born in the U.S., um, but also understanding just how different and, and, and how the, the world views, how differently the world views us um, from those perspectives. So it was great. We, we had a great time, and I got to do some cool work stuff, but, but the travel and the, and the cultural immersion was fantastic. Right, and so I think... Where I want to jump into now is Drive Capital in Columbus. I know that our time is a little limited today. Um, and what I want to talk about is, you know, we talked, we mentioned earlier that mm -hmm. Drive Capital was the, was founded in the Midwest mm -hmm. and it was the first venture capital firm really to stake its claim on the Midwest. And so what have you seen out of the Midwest that you think is different from Silicon Valley sure. and what's similar? Sure. And why do you think the Midwest excels at Sure. And maybe even to... Uh, preface that talk a little bit about how you guys got the idea and how you guys kind of all joined up to come sure. in the first place sure so um just first clarification we're not the first vc fund ever mm -hmm. found in, in the midwest there have been a lot of 
um, funds before us. Um, and th- I think the, the key is um, the history of drive capital actually started 10, 12 years ago, um, although we didn't know it at the time. Um, 10, 12 years ago, cloud infrastructure, cloud computing started to, to uh, emerge. And um, before that, if you wanted to build a product of scale and therefore a company of scale, you needed a data center. You needed um, these rows and rows and rows of servers uh, and uh, and the, a lot of smart network engineers to manage and scale and, and, and build that infrastructure. And it was super expensive. And all those people live in San Francisco or Seattle. And so if you wanted to build that type of company or that type of product, you had to be in San Francisco. Um, and that's where all the venture capital dollars are, are as well. When cloud infrastructure emerged, you could rent that capability with a credit card and an AWS account, Amazon Web Services, or any number of cloud hosting services. Um, and increasingly, software, business software, enterprise software moved to the cloud such that literally a credit card and uh, a broadband internet connection, and you could access all of these tools um, that would have previously required a, a bunch of servers, a bunch of equipment on site, and therefore the people to manage it. Um, so as it started, uh, cloud computing started to emerge, the reasons to be in, in Silicon Valley started to um, dissipate, other than the, the presence of capital there. And Sequoia Capital, where Mark and Chris, my partners and the co-founders of the fund are from, saw this trend and took it to um, it took the next step, which is, if you can build a company anywhere, uh, where would you want to be? And their answer was, you want to be in the markets, next to the customers around which you'll build these companies. Um, and at the time, they saw China and India and Israel and Eastern Europe as these big opportunities, as, as have other firms since. So they set up funds there. They went to the markets. Knowing you could build these companies and these products from anywhere in the world now, um, take the money to those markets. They weren't asking Chinese and Indian entrepreneurs to move to Silicon Valley. They went there. Um, fast forward to 2011, um, and that's when Mark Kwame, my partner who co-founded the fund, w- found himself in Ohio. He was on sabbatical from Sequoia. He was helping Governor Kasich set up um, this uh, and, and redesign the state's economic development organization. And he saw the Midwest for the first time. And through the lens of Sequoia Capital saw lots of huge customers, you know, healthcare, insurance, retail, manufacturing, of course, um, uh, agriculture, huge industries, billions, in some cases, trillion-dollar industries, whose biggest customers are sitting in Columbus, Cleveland, Indianapolis, Minneapolis, Chicago, Pittsburgh, um, and companies around them solving their problems, either selling data solutions or enterprise software or mobile applications or connected devices um, to solve their business problems, making, giving them an unfair advantage because they were closest, they understand those industries, they have domain expertise. Um, and they looked around and said, this is a great place to build these sorts of companies. Where's all the capital? And last year, um, 4% of venture capital was invested in the whole Midwest, not just Ohio, not just Columbus, but the whole Midwest. That imbalance um, created this amazing opportunity where all these great companies that were being founded um, all around us, solving problems for these huge industries all around us, 
ample talent that we're not competing for um, with Amazon and Microsoft and Facebook and Google all around us. Um, those are the raw ingredients you need to build massive market-defining successful companies. Um, that's why Drive Capital was started. So the, the, the opportunity is, is what I just described, how it played out. Uh, Mark and Chris left Sequoia Capital and uh, a little over three years ago um, raised our first fund. It was a $250 million fund. Um, we've now invested that across 19 companies uh, all across the Midwest. Um, and uh, we'll soon be announcing that we've raised a second fund um, so that we can continue investing in the same types of companies that we've seen um, for the next three or four years. When it comes to raising funds, are you guys just reaching out to your network of people who have been fortunate to be successful and mm -hmm. gathering them, and then do they get a percentage of the companies you invest in, or kind of how does the financials behind that work? No, no, we, so we do all of our own investing, um, and it really starts at the market level. We spend most of our time trying to understand markets. So um, some quick VC math, $250 million fund for us to be um, successful needs to, and, and to keep our jobs and get to keep doing this, needs to return to our investors that plus a billion dollars. And uh, we have 19 companies we've invested in so far. A third of those are going to make it. Um, the unfortunate nature of what we do is we invest in very unproven early stage companies, inventing things in, in many cases for the first time. Um, a lot of times it's just not going to work out. The market's not there. We execute. We get there too late. There's a, there's a bunch of reasons why it doesn't work. Um, but, but because of that, for the ones that do make it and become valuable market-defining firms, they've got to make it big. Um, and uh, our fractional ownership in that company needs to return to us $100, $150 million uh, on top of our initial investment to aggregate to that billion dollars plus the 250 we've we've um, from our investors. The reason I explain that is we need to believe every time we invest in a company with conviction that this is going to be a billion dollar plus valued company. And to do that, you need to invest in companies that are in big markets um, that have the opportunity to solve large scale problems for big industries. Um, with technology and do so in a way that outshines the competition and do so in the way that that generates a lot of revenue um, and and creates really loyal customers um, so the the reason that's important uh, the reason I, I give you all that context is we start by understanding those markets first we don't go looking for companies to see what they're doing or have them come to us and we tell them what we think we start by first building very strong um, points of view, understanding and then points of view on markets like um, healthcare IT or usage-based insurance or ag tech um, and look for um, the technologies that are accelerating rapid change or disruption in, or in those industries or solving problems that couldn't be solved before through technology or things like demographic shifts or um, policy changes. And these are the catalysts for creating these giant businesses. Um, so we look to understand and build a point of view on those. And then we look for the companies solving those problems. And they can be 
two people in a garage, you know, hacking on a prototype, or it could be a healthy business with tens of millions in revenue and growing rapidly and doing just fine. Um, but we think that they're um, either now or positioned to be the leader in that space, and we go and we call them. You know, we pick up the phone, we jump on a plane. So it's very proactive investment based on our own developed theses on a market. Yeah, and one thing that I, you know, that as you were saying all that, I thought about was that at a venture capital firm, you really get to see the changes happening and how people are advancing technology and advancing systems. And so, what I guess my question in all this would be, how quickly do you think things are going to change? Mm -hmm. I mean, you, you've heard of constantly about the um, um, exponential growth sure. of technology. How quickly do you feel that? technology and the world is going to change here in the next 20 30 years the world as a whole or the world in columbus or the world in the midwest i would say focused in the midwest sure mostly i'd say it, it's already happening and it's been happening for a while we're not creating a trend we're capitalizing on it for years now entrepreneurs in the midwest have been very scrappily building technology companies um, in some cases, really, really valuable technology companies. Exact Target is a company in Indianapolis um, that built a $3 billion uh, automated marketing software company. There's now 3,500 employees in Indianapolis that weren't there 10 years ago because of what they built. Um, there are companies in Chicago like um, Groupon, Grubhub, Braintree, um, Cleversafe, Fieldglass. These are each uh, all companies that are um, valued at over a billion dollars um, that were built in the Midwest before we got here. So we feel like we're just getting here, maybe before other um, large firms have started here, um, but after the, the, um, the trend has begun with entrepreneurs building great companies in, in, in the Midwest. And we think that's all obviously going to only accelerate. What are some key things to know as a company <clears throat> that differs venture capital from the other ways to get raise funds out there? Sure. Well, because of the math I explained earlier, it's not for everyone. It's not for every company. There are a lot of beautiful businesses um, that can change lives, create a lot of jobs, and, and create a lot of wealth for their founders that won't be billion-dollar companies um, or um, that aren't the, the type of software-typically-driven businesses um, that we understand how to grow. So um, just because those are the types of companies our model um, favors doesn't mean that the that other companies suck. So there are a lot of great ways to build really wonderful companies. Um, and Columbus is an example of a lot of great businesses that have been um, built without ca uh, venture capital. So really, uh, generally, you know, I can only speak for, for our venture capital fund, but we look for those types of companies in these massive markets um, where converging technologies or other tailwinds are driving rapid, rapid disruption. And the companies in those markets accelerating that disruption through technology or benefiting from the new business models that emerge on the other side of that disruption, we believe those will be very big businesses, valuable for a long period, um, that get there on a relatively quick timeline. Now, in our world, that's seven to ten years. Um, so it does, nothing happens overnight, um, but it took, um, you know, Facebook to become what it is in you know ten or twelve years since its founding, um, whereas it's as valuable as Chevron, which has been around for 
you know, almost a century. Um, so there are different kinds of businesses that become great on different types of timelines. Those that are technology driven, um, that have that sort of scale growth opportunity are the ones we look for. What are some of the key major companies that you guys are investing in now and uh, maybe take us through a couple of the top sure. ones that you guys are the most proud of? Sure. We're proud of them all. Uh, you know, you guys don't have kids yet, but whenever I'm asked which is my favorite, they're both my favorite. Um, but we're really excited about um, a bunch of companies in our portfolio. So, um, you know, just keeping it to Columbus for now, I mentioned Crosschecks. Um, they're uh, actually our first investment um, a little over three years ago, and they are trying to change the face of healthcare um, and bring into healthcare the sort of technology and seamless patient experience and data reliability um, that we've all come to expect in our everyday lives, except for healthcare. You know, you walk into healthcare and it's like you into a hospital or, or, or into a doctor's office and it's like you step back in time. They hand you a paper clipboard uh, with a bunch of forms you filled out last time and ask you to write the same answers and then someone manually enters them in there. That's information they should know about us. Um, that's information where if someone's manually entering it, is prone to errors. And those errors could cost lives. Um, and that's information that if the healthcare system on the other side of that had uh, uh, better access to digitally, could do a whole bunch of things to better serve me as a customer. So that is the mission of, of, of cross-checks, which they're well on their way to achieving. They've built all sorts of amazing apps um, that are improving the experience, uh, both for patients in the hospital and what, what um, uh, providers on the other side of that can do with that information. Um, and they've built an amazing tech team. I mean, they're over 100 people now um, with a crazy cool office downtown, staying up late, cranking out product, and, and really every day moving that um, forward on that mission in ways that, uh, that you know, like I said, th that we get excited about because of its rapid pace. It's actually, uh, it's one I'm really rooting for. For one, because I was fortunate enough to meet a couple of people leading the company, great people. But on top of that, I was telling Mike before I moved a bunch of times as a kid, every time I'd move, my health care files would be all over the place. Mm -hmm. They never knew what shots I had. They, everything was all over the place. I think I had like 14 tetanus. I can't get tetanus for the next 30 years <laughs> because I have so much tetanus in me. I don't think that's how it I'm works. tetanus <laughs> I give I, a, I give dirty metal. Let's As go. A biology major. <laughs> I was free health. Decided not to take that route. I don't recommend. Well, what Josh just said is like don't. We can take him out tetanus shots and then don't get one for fifteen years. Just take him out back and roll him around in rusty right. metal and see yeah, what we'll, happens. We'll test it. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, they're exciting. Um, uh, another one of our companies, Root, um, is uh, a platform that actually uses your behavioral data to determine if you're a safe driver. So. Right now you get auto insurance and the insurance company uses things like your gender or your age or your credit score uh, to determine what kind of a risk you are as a driver. Um, when today in your pocket is a computer full of sensors that can tell us all sorts of things about how you actually drive. And we can use that to write smarter insurance policies and smarter insurance policies actually end up being cheaper insurance policies because using that old monolithic data set the insurance company really still doesn't know if you're a safe driver, so they have to put a little something on top to cover their risk. We actually know how quickly you accelerate and decelerate, how sharply you take turns, how often you drive, where you drive. 
Um, did you pick up that phone, your phone to respond to that text while you're going 55 miles an hour? Um, and these are the things that actually matter when it comes to auto insurance. And Root is using that data combined with some very sophisticated um, algorithms and, and models to better price and better um, sell auto insurance to drivers. Um, all that's happening right here. And by the way, it's, it's, it's important to note that that's two companies of the, of the four we've invested in. Um, but of the four, two are in healthcare IT, tour insurance, um, new models of, of data-driven insurance. Look around the tall buildings. Look around the talent in this town. It's insurance and it's healthcare, um, and 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 our companies benefit from that domain knowledge, um, the expertise that we're able to tap, uh, the customers we're able to sell to because of that proximity. Great. Right, and I think we're approaching the end of our time here, uh, Robert. But I just wanted to ask you one quick question: sure. Is there any last comments you have for? People of Columbus, our listeners out there who may be, you know, looking to pure a job in a startup sure. or things like that, sure. that uh, that you feel you could have used at the beginning of your career. Yeah. Well, I think uh, the thing to note is, Drive Capital exists, um, and I am in Columbus because of Drive Capital, um, because this is the best place in the world to build a venture capital fund, because it is the best place in the world to build an exciting. In high impact market defining technology company. Um, my partners could have started a fund anywhere. Um, they could have stayed at the one they were at, which was which is pretty good. Sequoia Capital, um, and the and the other partners that have joined the firm since relocated from San Francisco um, from fantastic careers. Um, so we moved here not because we were looking for cheap houses or bigger lawns or better schools, although we get those things. Um, we're here because this is a, a fantastic, amazing, once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And everyone here should understand that if they're um, looking around and, and, and not seeing what we see, um, because it's there. Um, and even in the short time we've been here, um, we've seen it. We've seen it in our companies. We've seen it in others like Cover My Meds. We've seen it in um, you know uh, the, the type of exciting people that continually show up in Columbus. You know, Doug Ullman, who, who runs Pelotonia, who should absolutely be a, a guest on your show, is a fantastic example of a world-class talent coming here to run a world-class organization and take it to new heights at Pelotonia. Um, and that's just, you know, one example. You look across Ohio State Medical Center, you look across Nationwide Children's, you look across um, what L Brands is doing, and it, they are magnets for world-class talent that, that surrounds us. So um, this is a fantastic place to build a career. And for us, at, at my later stage in life, a great place to build a family. And I think that's part of our goal, too, is just to kind of convey that to everybody because if we've started digging into people, the research and interview we've found, the most remarkable high-level individuals in the world, some of them are right here in Central Ohio, mm -hmm. that you would never even hear about. Um, but Mike lied, so one last final question that we're going to close <laughs> out with is, um, Joe would kill me if I didn't ask, so he's our third partner. And I want to know, we've been asking people, like, what does it mean to you to live uncomfortably in terms of getting to where you are today? So we found that, you know, a lot of people who are... I, I would love to live comfortably for once in my life. <laughs> um you know, it, it actually goes back to my experience at Netflix, which we didn't get to talk about uh, much, and it was an amazing experience. But um, uh, I was um, sent to London uh, with a colleague to, to start up what was going to be the first international expansion effort for Netflix. 
And um, we got in there. We were there for six months. We hired a team. This is back in the days when we used to ship DVDs. So this is pre-streaming. Um, and it was, it was going to be a defining moment in my career. Build a team, expand into a new geography, live abroad, you know, really have a strong sense of ownership on uh, a meaningful chunk of what would become what I knew would become and has become this amazing globally successful company. And we got word that um, Amazon was entering the market to compete against us first in the UK um, and then later in the US our home market. And that changed everything. We knew um, we knew we were going to beat Blockbuster. We knew we were going to beat Walmart. Um, we took Amazon very seriously. And the decision was made very quickly. Stop what you're doing in London. Pull the plug. Get back to the U.S. We're going to start um, going head-on at Amazon and hopefully scare them out of the market, which is what they did. Um, but for me, that meant laying off the team we had hired, which was really hard, um, and saying goodbye to an experience that um, I was really looking forward to. And while the challenges of going back and helping the, um, the mothership at Netflix um, compete and win against companies like Amazon and later Google and, uh, or sorry, later Apple and iTunes and others today, um, an amazing company I love to work for w was um, still a big setback for me. And I, I called one of my old mentors from Virgin Mobile and said, you know, here's this great opportunity. It didn't work out how I had hoped. I don't know if I can take the ups and downs of this startup life. And, and he said, you're crazy. Um, not because you can't take the ups and downs, but because these are ups and downs you chose. These are situations you put yourself into and continue to put yourself into. Um, you know, being the first to launch a new product or joining that startup or, or moving back home to Cleveland, which is, you know, from where I was coming from as, on a career uh, trajectory standpoint, was not on paper a good move. Um, being comfortable in, in those situations was something I learned from that conversation because he said, you've already made your decision. You've already chosen again and again to be in these types of situations. You're just going to have to suck it up and get over the ups and downs because I can't see you being happy in more stable, controlled, predictable environments or else you would have chosen those already. So um, for me, unfortunately, or for better or for worse, being in an uncomfortable state is kind of a way of life. Um, I don't know what it's like to get up every morning and know exactly what's going to happen and exactly how it's going to play out. And I like that. And this experience at Drive, what we're building, and everything that's led up to it has has had that common theme of doing things that have never been done before, uh, learning things uh, that I've never done before, and really having a fairly um, uh, lack, uh, having a lack of safety net if it doesn't work out, knowing I'll figure it out on the other side. Um, but that I enjoy that, that autonomy, that, that accountability and the responsibility that comes with it. All right, Conquerors, that's the end of the episode. We really enjoyed that interview with Robert and we hope you did too. We think he had a lot of great advice and stories for us. And if you liked the episode, please go check us out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We're all over social media. Give us a rating on iTunes and share us with your friends. It really helps us out. If you want to check out any of the cool stuff Drive Capital's been doing, all their links will be in the show notes. Can't wait for you guys to tune in next week. That's Conquering Columbus. We'll talk to you guys later. You could drop me anywhere on the planet, in any environment, and I might get you know, my head kicked in, 
in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, you know, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus.